Richard Crashaw, the 17th century English Catholic poet, filled one of the last stanzas of his, of, of his poem in the Holy Nativity of Our Lord God with a series of apparent contradictions as he welcomes the Christ child. Welcome, all wonders in one sight, eternity shut in a span, summer in winter, day and night, heaven and earth, God in man, great little one whose all-embracing birth lifts heaven, earth to heaven, stoops heaven to earth. That second line of this stanza captures in a singular way the enormous paradox of the incarnation. Eternity shut in a span. That span is the distance between our thumb and our pinky finger. That's the measure of a span. The poet speaks about putting all of eternity into that small and tiny confine. This is what we're here to talk about tonight. This is the welcome that we're meant to make of Christ at Christmas time. Here, the poet presents limitless time shut within tiny confines and an apt image for the Christ child, for the omnipotent, all-powerful God shut within the tiny limbs of a babe, the mystery of the incarnation as an enfleshment, a coming of God in the flesh. These apparent contradictions in the poem contain or capture the enormity of the notion that almighty God became one like us in all things but sin. This concept, this is a concept that even the early church struggled with. How can God become man? How can the creator become a creature? This confusion is certainly evident in the early church's musings about, about the identity of Jesus. How does God's becoming a human being save us from our sins? The early Arian heresy simply stated that Christ was the highest creature, that Christ was indeed not God after all, but a creature that was approximate to God. A later heresy of adoptionism merely stated that Christ was a good man who happened to be adopted by God, who becomes God in a sense. In each case, the church steadfastly proclaimed in the face of these various heresies and missteps and thought that Jesus Christ was indeed true God and true man, and that he was not a highest creature nor was he some kind of hybrid, some kind of part God, part human being, but rather he is completely and totally God and completely and totally human. This is what the church and St. Thomas Aquinas learned particularly from Revelation. Our redemption, our, our freedom from sin required 
a response, a response from God, not just to our individual sin, but to the whole phenomenon of sin itself, to what had disfigured and marred the human being. The human person is a substantial union of body and soul. That is, we aren't simply spirits caught up in a kind of bodily shell. The flesh is not simply a covering or coating for the real me, but rather that flesh is intimately part of each and every one of us. We cannot have a human being, this rational animal, without having a body, without having flesh. These rational animals who have sinned must be addressed in their sinfulness, not only as it affects their spirit or soul, but most especially as it affects their body as well. Christ approaches us in the flesh to achieve redemption in the flesh. Back at the creation story, and back at the creation story, we look back at them as rational animals, as human persons, as human persons who in their entirety are breaking God's commandment, his one commandment, not to eat of the tree of good and evil. And they separate themselves not only from God spiritually, but also in their bodies as well. There are consequences of their sin. And these consequences not only relate to this, this alienation from God spiritually and mentally, but also in their bodies. We suffer pain and death, death not only of the body, but also the eternal death of the soul. It is this mystery of pain and suffering which we have received as heirs of Adam and Eve. And this pain and suffering is not just, as we all know, a spiritual pain. It is a real physical pain. God responds, he speaks a word. And that word that he speaks is the incarnation. That incarnation healing us by identifying us in all things, identifying with us in all things, but sin. Jesus, as the Son of God, offers himself for us, to us. He offers himself not just as a spiritual sacrifice, but as a real fleshy sacrifice for the sin of Adam and Eve, and for each one of our individual sins, our sins that affect us not just in our souls, but mark our flesh as well. The whole human person is affected by sin, and the whole human person, body and soul, needs a remedy. St. Thomas Aquinas, in speaking about the incarnation in the third part of his Summa, says as much. In his extended discourse on the life of Christ, in that third part of the Summa, in the very first question, he speaks about the fittingness of the incarnation. God, 
as infinitely good desires to communicate his goodness to us. Hence, says St. Thomas, it belongs to the essence of the highest goodness to communicate itself in the highest manner to the creature. And this is brought about chiefly by his so joining created nature, nature to himself that one person is made up of these three, the word, a soul, and flesh. St. Thomas receives a little boost from uh, St. Augustine there. In addressing the question about whether the incarnation is necessary, St. Thomas moves on to a contemplation of, of truth, which really shows how our Lord responds to every part of the human person. He states and admits that God as omnipotent could have accomplished salvation in, in many different ways, but that the incarnation was the most fitting way to address human nature and human sin. His response addresses our progress in good and our withdrawal from evil. And in his comments, he makes clear that he not he, he doesn't mean this in a, a solely spiritualized sense. Rather, he means it to become an incarnate reality. He means that in the redemption of Christ, Christ wins us these things precisely in and through his incarnation, his enfleshment. First, he says, we uh, with we. <clears throat> approach the good with regard to faith in the incarnation, which is made more certain by a uh, by believing the God, the very God who speaks. In Christ, we have real human words that are addressed to us, real words addressed to his disciples, his apostles. And those words are carried on by those apostles and disciples down through the ages to us. Those words of the scripture uh, are those enunciations of God himself by this God who speaks not just to the disciples and to the apostles, but who speaks to us today in the words of scripture, in the word of holy tradition. Secondly, with regard to hope, which is thereby greatly strengthened by the incarnation. Here, St. Thomas quotes St. Augustine, what could afford us greater proof of God's love than that the Son of God should become our partner in human nature? And God should deign to become one like us in all things but sin. Truly, this is a God who loves us. He doesn't have to do this, but he does this. He takes on our flesh to strengthen our hope by this manifestation of the supreme love. Third, God increases our goodness with regard to charity, which is greatly enkindled by what I just mentioned, God's love. Our charity, seeing the charity of God, seeing that infinite charity of God, cannot help but be inspired, be inflamed, so that we might be able to love 
not just with the passions, but with our reason to love in virtue, to uh, believe, to hope, to love, and these three uh, great virtues, these great theological virtues, are the things, the very things which join us to Christ, which help to join us, not just spiritually, but help to join us also in our bodies, in this life, here and now. Fourthly, he says, the incarnation helps to increase our good with regard to doing the good in which he sets us an example. Of course, he's saying that this is not just the example of uh, his kind words, his, his uh, spiritual teaching, his, but also the example, the supreme example, of course, of the cross, that example of love given unto death. We are meant to follow the Lord, not only in his spiritual teaching, but we are meant to live from within and express from without. We are meant to be redeemed both inside and out as the rational animals that we are, to be redeemed not just with respect to the, the virtues as they reside within our hearts, but also with respect to the, the virtues manifest in our very bodies. Fifthly, we are meant to increase in goodness with regard to the full participation of the divinity, which is the true bliss of man and the end of human life. And this is bestowed on us by Christ's humanity. For Augustine says in a sermon, God was made man that man might be made God. We are meant to have that full participation or sharing in the divinity. Christ has come among us, like us in all things but sin, in order to share his divinity with us. He has come to redeem us in the flesh, and he has taken that flesh into the kingdom of heaven. Think of the resurrection. Think of that account of uh, the gospel of St. Matthew as, as uh, St. Peter and St. John run towards the tomb. And as they look in, they don't see a body there, a lifeless body. They see the whole person of Jesus resurrected. This is the empty tomb, the mystery of the empty tomb, and also the very real presence of Jesus in the upper room when he comes to visit them, when he chides them for their disbelief, when he shows to them his hands and his side, which are still indelibly marked with the signs of the crucifixion. We have here a great example of how Christ has embraced our flesh. That Christ, the second person of the Trinity, has ascended to heaven, not as some airy spiritual reality. He didn't leave his body behind as some kind of unnecessary wrapping. He left it. He left body and soul. He left in his body because that was his, that was, was uh, part of his human nature and part of his person. 
bringing that human body to the kingdom of heaven in the ascension, in the resurrection and the ascension, we see how all of human existence, all of human life has been redeemed. St. Thomas also speaks of five ways the incarnation removes us from evil. And allow me just to go very briefly through these. First, because man is taught by it not to prefer the devil to himself, nor to honor him who is the author of sin. And here he quotes St. Augustine saying, since human nature is united to God as to become one person, let not those proud spirits, the demons, dare to prefer themselves to man because they have no bodies. There is something more perfect in man because God deigned, he humbled himself to become one like us. He humbled himself to take up our flesh and to take that, that flesh into the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, because there are thereby taught how great is man's dignity, lest we should stain it with sin. And here he quotes Pope Leo the Great, learn, O Christian, your worth, and being a partner of the divine nature, refuse to return by evil deeds to your former worthlessness. Thirdly, the incarnation does away with man's presumption. We are only saved by the free gift given in Jesus Christ. We are saved by him with no merit of our own. Fourthly, and here he quotes Augustine, we are uh, brought away from uh, wickedness and evil in the incarnation because man's pride can, um, can only be convinced and cured by a humility so great that is Christ's humility coming to, uh, to deigning to come to us in this lowly form of flesh. And fifthly, to flee, uh, sorry, to free humans from slavery to sin by making satisfaction for our sins in justice. St. Thomas points out with the help of St. Augustine and St. Leo the Great that an ordinary man could not satisfy for all our sins, need to be perfect. Pope Leo the Great uh, speaks about this in terms that are reminiscent of, well, terms that, that precede uh, Richard Crashaw's uh, poem. Weakness is assumed, is taken up by strength in the incarnation. Lowliness by majesty, mortality by eternity, in order that one and the same mediator of God might die in one and rise in the other. That is, might die in one nature and rise in the other. For this was our fitting remedy. Unless he was God, he would not have brought a remedy. And unless he was man, he would not have set an example. St. Thomas so beautifully summarizes our tradition here, pointing to Jesus as the one perfect meeting place, that meeting place of God and man, uniting us to uh, God, not only in spirit, but also, and most importantly, in his very flesh, raising us in our whole person, body and soul, to himself. 
it is this fleshy notion of redemption that the church focuses on, particularly at this time of the year, particularly also in our age. It's particularly apt for our age. <coughs> Excuse me. We live in a post-enlightenment age. We live in a post-modern one as well that has lost its appreciation for the dignity of the human flesh given in our creation, but healed, restored, and raised in the person of Christ. The focus on the flesh, if we think about it, is everywhere in Catholicism. There's no timidity in depicting Christ in the flesh, in honoring images not only of Jesus, but also of the saints. These depictions assist us fleshly creatures, creatures of sense, to stand in the presence of those who have gone before. The icons, uh, these depictions or icons are seen not as idols to be worshiped, but as windows to heaven, to those who, uh, who gaze on the face of Christ, or we might be led even to gaze upon the face of Christ himself. This feast of the senses is not only in church art, but it's also in almost anything that appeals to the human senses, to these gifts of the body. That music we might think of, architecture, the smells of incense, the chrism oil on the hands of a newly ordained priest, the beauty in prayers and devotions that appeal not only to reason and the soul, but to reason and the soul through the body. We might think of making genuflections or even the very posture of prayer as yet another proof of that intimate unity between body and soul, that unity of body and soul whereby the body reminds us of the task we are about. Being on our knees helps us to think that we are in prayer. The beautiful vestments and, uh, and also the, um, the beautiful chalices and, and all the ornaments of a church help to us to focus, us we creatures, to focus our senses and thus our concentration on those realities which affect us, not just spiritually, but also bodily. Above all, of course, our minds were put in mind when we think of this fleshy nature of redemption of the sacraments, those means by which Christ, those means which Christ has left us, by which we are brought into union with Christ's life. We find here kind of perfect response to the enlightenment focus on airy reason, the postmodern divorce of the flesh and the mind of objective truth and the apprehension of the senses. Here in the sacraments, the Lord has left us these signs, these signs which can be apprehended through our senses, these signs of flesh, and blood, these signs most preeminently figured in the, the sacrament of the Eucharist, body and blood, soul and divinity of Christ, how that 
that body and blood of Christ comes to be on our altar. As the priest says those words of Jesus, this is my body, this is my blood. And as these fleshy realities that appeal to and answer to the yearnings of our flesh, it is these very, uh, these very uh, touchable realities, we might say, these very visual things, touchable, we, we taste these things. We have a foretaste, we say, of salvation in the Eucharist. Each of our sacraments involves some sort of sensible sign. The water in baptism, the chrism oil in confirmation, the, uh, the host in holy communion, the host and the, the precious blood, the flesh and blood of our Lord, the uh, chrism in, uh, in, the or in ordination, the exchange of vows audible in, the, uh, in, in marriage, in, when, in the, the sacrament of marriage. In each of these things, the Lord has left us these very real signs, fleshy signs, signs that help us then to come to him, not only just mentally, not only in some airy spiritual way, but most importantly, as we are true human persons, body and blood, body and soul. In all of this, when we look upon that representation of the child Jesus in our nativity sets and in the depictions of the child Jesus in contemporary art or in and uh, the great Renaissance masters or back even further in the medieval uh, frescoes and such. When we look at that child Jesus, we may look with great tenderness upon the little babe, upon this little body. But we need to remember it is this little body that saves us. It is this little body which will suffer and die for us. In this, it is this little body that is so powerful. Let us not be deceived by the humility of Christ's flesh here, but rather let us be transformed, transformed not only in spirit, but transformed in body as we exercise those actions of Christ, the charity of Christ in and through the flesh, as we carry out all of those saving works and add that dimension of real flesh out there in the world. We are meant truly as we consume the blessed sacrament to become what we receive. We are meant to embrace this fleshy redemption. And so as we, like Richard Crashaw so long ago, welcome the Christ child yet again, we are called to remember our dignity as Christ has embraced our flesh 
that we are made to be made one with him, that we are made to be made one with him, not only in our spirits and souls, but in our bodies as well. Excellent. Thank you so much, Father Albert. Uh, wonderful lecture. Um, we now have some time for question and answer. Uh, so please, uh, if you're watching on YouTube or here on Zoom, if you have questions, please go ahead and submit those uh, through the chat function. Um, the first question that we have is from Zoom. Uh, that question is, I have heard Thomas say that Christ is efficient, exemplar, and final cause of our salvation. Could you expand on what that means? So that's efficient, exemplar, and final cause of our salvation. Okay. Um Efficient cause is what puts something into motion, puts, uh, puts uh, something uh, into motion in the sense that, that one enacts, enacts something. And so in that efficient cause, Christ enacts our redemption by, uh, by through, in and through his, his incarnation, through... Um, through his, his union with God the Father, and God the Father wills our salvation, sending his son to us. And in that sense, Jesus becomes, a, uh, 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 Jesus becomes that, that cause of our salvation. And uh, in the very beginning, he is an exemplar precisely because um, well, first of all, the, the second person of the Trinity is the exemplary cause of all of creation. God the Father, if we are to imagine it in a certain way, of course, all analogies limp here, but um, if we were to imagine as though God the Father is, uh, as, as creator, creates by first looking at his son and creates all things in accord with, with what he sees. It's like an artist who's looking at a model at an, at an exemplar and then produces the whole of creation. Christ is the exemplar of our salvation in the sense that he comes among us in the flesh. And in that sense, he provides an example in the flesh of, um, of what, what a human being really is, what we are meant to be. And he also provides that moral example a spiritual example, a um, uh, uh, and in that, in in embracing our life in all of its various stages and in all of these various circumstances, he also redeems each and every part of uh, of human life. And in that sense, it becomes exemplary. He he provides an example for us. And most especially in his passion and in his death and resurrection, he manifests for us uh, not only the mystery of suffering and death and gives meaning to it by uh, in and, and through his, his suffering and death for us, he becomes an example of overwhelming love, but in the resurrection, he becomes an exemplary cause in the sense that, that he is the first to rise to the new life. He takes us body and soul 
excuse me. <coughs> he takes us body and soul to the um, to the kingdom of heaven. Uh, we might think of of um, his words to the good thief. Um, this day you will be with me in paradise. That's the exemplary cause. He is the final cause of our salvation because he, in, in doing all of this and being that efficient cause, that exemplary cause, he orders our life. He orders our life in a new covenant. And we are aimed, as it were, to him. We, he is, as I said before, that meeting place between the flesh, between human, uh, the human person, the human being, and God. And uh, in that union, we see the ultimate end, purpose, goal of the whole of human existence. He gives that meaning as we look back upon the human life, that meaning to it all. So indeed, the, the, the person who suffers a wretched death at the hands of persecutors or uh, somebody who hates the faith, that, that person uh, can indeed, his suffering is, is not without meaning. Um, it can be redeemed in and through this new life given in Christ. He's given his life for Christ. And that is what gives all of that suffering, not just ordinary meaning, but glorious meaning. Thank you. Our next question comes from YouTube. And um, Ellie McMaster asks, does God speak to us directly through our physical senses? Can the body know God? Well, <clears throat> we believe that, that God really did speak physically to the apostles, <laughs> to the disciples. Uh, he, was, he was audible. Um, and uh, their, uh, their record of that, uh, of that speech, uh, of those words, has come down to us, of course, in the, um, uh, has come down to us, of course, in the, uh, in, in the scriptures, in the New Testament. And so God has spoken to us uh, in that way. In that sense, we might say analogously that every time the scriptures are read, Christ speaks to us. He is speaking to us. Not, he's not just speaking to the apostles and disciples long ago. Um, that word is meant to be uh, a word that penetrates us. Uh, St. Paul calls it a two-edged sword. Right, it 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 gets right down to the very nitty gritty of us, of who we are, um, and so Christ speaks to us in that means as well. Christ speaks to us in and through the liturgy. Now, obviously, this is all part of uh, of tradition of what is handed down to us, and it's in that sense that that Christ can speak to us in that way. We might think of Christ speaking to us in the beautiful polyphony of, uh, of a great 16th century composer or even the, the, uh, a beautiful, uh, beautiful uh, hymn by the modern composer Morton Lauritsen. Um, <clears throat> in, in each of those cases, God, insofar as 
as these are our scripture, or they, they speak the truth, we are listening to, listening to God. And in that sense, that's another analogous way in which we hear God in, in the here and now is through, um, through the enunciation of truth. Truth itself is, um, well, is, is Jesus declares himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. And so anytime we are listening to the truth, anytime we hear the truth and receive it in our hearts, we are receiving a word of Christ. Even those scientific truths which we receive in the classroom are part and parcel of that created truth, which uh, helps, to, uh, helps us to appreciate, to, uh, see, uh, to see God even in creation. Now, um, I think rather that you might be thinking of more extraordinary ways in which God might speak to us. Does God speak to us in prayer? Certainly. God speaks to us in prayer. Um, he might not speak with audible words, uh, words that are completely intelligible, but with his grace coming into our hearts, sometimes the silent effects of that grace are leading our hearts to him, even though we might not think anything is happening. That word of God, that effective word of God, the same word, the same God who enunciated the word of creation at the very beginning is speaking to us. And it comes to us in and through prayer, in and through prayer and spending time with Jesus in discourse with the Lord. We are speaking to him um, and he speaks to us. Um, there are uh, a, a few people who are given an extraordinary, and by this I mean a truly extraordinary grace. Uh, they're given the gift of, of, um, of a locution from God. Um, some people really do claim to have heard God speaking to them quite literally. And this is part of really an extraordinary personal subjective revelation. In this sense, it's not part of that greater big R revelation. It's, uh, it's, it's not something which is necessary for our salvation, that we should believe that this or that person actually heard the words of, of Christ speaking to him or her. Um, but rather, uh, it's a special grace or gift given to that person and, and meant for that person. And we do believe as Catholics that, that God, who is, after all, all-powerful, can speak in that way. Um, he can speak also in miracles and extraordinary expressions. Most often, though, he speaks to us in um, in the silence of mystery and uh, the graces and gifts of his sacraments. Thank you. Our next question uh, is a live question actually uh, from here on Zoom. Uh, James Whitaker uh, has a question. James, go ahead. Hi, thank you, Father, for your talk. Um, I'm, I'm very interested in the connection between sacramental theology and the incarnation and sort of viewing it through a sacramental lens so in, in, in the same way that sacraments are both physical and 
you know, metaphysical, incorporeal, and mysterious. Uh, how mm-hmm. should we approach the mysteriousness of the incarnation? Uh, and how can that aid our contemplation recognizing the, the mystery of the incarnation? That's a, that's a really good question and something which really the, the whole talk tonight was trying to, trying to get at. Uh, I'm glad that you asked that, that the mystery of the incarnation is, um, I, I think the greatest mystery is captured in those paradoxes of the, the poet at the very beginning. And uh, of course, uh, later on in the words of Pope St. Leo the Great, um, those paradoxes uh, are seeming contradictions. Um, there's somehow a, a greater truth there that unites both of those things, uh, the, the, the two things that appear to be contradictory. Uh, when we speak of mystery, we don't speak of, of something that we don't know. It's something we know partially, uh, something that is presented to us in revelation, God revealing himself in some way. Uh, I love that, that word revelatio. It's a uh, uh, teaching Latin here has helped me to appreciate the uh, the the wonderful uh, meaning of that of of just taking taking the the veil away and sort of manifesting something behind the veil. You might think of uh, a lot of older churches have a tabernacle veil, a veil that's over top of the tabernacle to to in a sense reflect this this veiling of the mystery that the that the mystery is too big almost to to, uh, for human eyes to, to really comprehend. It is, it is just too big. And when we gaze upon the Christ child, when we look, when we think about the mystery of the, uh, of the incarnation, it's uh, looking at that enfleshment, looking at that enfleshment of, of God um, and Thinking along with Crashaw, there's there's infinity, eternity in a span. Uh, there he is um, the the whole of um, the whole of of our redemption, just lying there in a manger. And that's why I think it's important for us to remember um, that this it's because of this mystery that all the other mysteries of Christ's life uh, and his ministry and are, are made possible. Um, when I was a kid, um, the, the school that I, I was in ran a, a little, little quiz and it said, uh, which, and it was, a, it was an attempt really to try to suss out and find out how much of the, uh, of the faith kids were learning in the classroom. And so uh, it was Catholic school, obviously. And uh, so one of the questions was, which feast is more important, Christmas or Easter? And my response at the time was, well, Christmas, because without Christmas, you wouldn't have Easter. (laughs) And uh, although I realize that's wrong, I mean, they're looking for Easter as the more important, you know, as the most important festival of the church year. But it, it, there is some sense to it. Um, this is the mystery, the flesh, uh, God touching us. Um, and how, you know, how does God do that? I mean, 
we can talk about it in some of the terms that I've used here tonight, but, but we're never going to be able to comprehend it. Uh, we're never going to be able to absolutely describe it. it. We can never come to the end of it because it's, after all, eternity shut into a span. 